Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back everybody to our study of the Avergatinos. And we are picking up once again uh, with our reading of the hypothesis on scrutinizing those who would seek to embrace the monastic vocation. And, uh, you know, even though this doesn't seem to apply directly to us, I think we'll see as we go through these stories about those who are seeking to enter into uh, a community or to embrace the monastic life in some form, that uh, this kind of put it, putting to the, the test of their desire for the life is very important. And uh, for a lot of different reasons, we'll see you know, that part of the temptations that we experience in our life is uh, the evil one putting doubts into our mind about the, the path of faith and uh, or our particular vocation. And so those who were monks felt that it was their responsibility to really test the individuals well about their reasons for wanting to embrace this life. And also if they had the particular virtues that would sustain them over the course of time. And the scrutiny is very deep as we'll see in each of these stories. They really put the individuals to the test and, uh, and yet we will see in the next hypothesis that there is also a willingness to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit, not to develop such a myopic view of the vocation or who would be well suited to it. You know, the particular kinds of personalities. Uh, they did, did not scrutinize in that way. They were looking for particular virtues that would uh, sustain them in the life, but not for gifts, talents, abilities, personality types, and those kinds of things. And so they didn't allow their, their vision of the person to become so narrow that they would discount certain individuals from the monastic life because of their past, or you know, if they had led a very sinful life or even committed certain crimes. Uh, it didn't prevent them from embracing this life. After all, it was a penitential life and a life of conversion. And so it was often those who had struggled with sin greatly in their life who would be called to it. And so to look for the perfect individual uh, to enter into this life wouldn't make much sense in that regard, especially if somebody was seeking to embrace the penitential life to turn to give their life over fully to God after living a dissolute life. And so tonight again we're picking up on page 214 with letter B. Saint Pacomius used to pray continuously that God's will might be done in him. After a period of time while he was keeping vigil and praying for this an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said God's will is for you to serve him and reconcile the human race to God. After saying this three times, he departed from Pacomius. He therefore gave thanks to God, and when he had been assured once again that the vision was from God, he began to receive those who came in repentance before God and to give them the monastic schema after much scrutiny, dissuading them from the cares of this life and advancing them gradually in asceticism. So it's interesting. It's a nice little story to start off with that Pacomius, who was one of the first to develop a specific role uh, for the monastic life. So it's one of the earliest roles that we have uh, in the history of monastic life is given this responsibility to reconcile men to God. And one of the ways that he would be able to do this is to receive them into a life of repentance, to uh, after much scrutiny, draw them into a, a very particular role of life in order that they might turn away from the passions and embrace the life of virtue. But the, the focus is on reconciling men to God. So it's not uh, embracing a life of penance or asceticism disconnected or abstracted from the relationship with God. The, the whole idea behind this way of life is to restore men and women to God and to give them the means, the tools by which they could do that. And Pacomius in particular uh, had the great gift of discernment that uh, he could see who was suited, well suited for the life, uh, but also provide them with the, the skills that they would need to be able to persevere within it. 
beautifully. Letter C from the life of Theodora. Theodora, the most blessed of women, decided to renounce the world and worldly cares and to trip up the deceiver, the devil, with very clever devices. She put on men's clothing so as to escape being detected by her husband, who would surely have diligently searched for her and went to a men's monastery, 18 Semia away from Alexandria. When she reached the gateway of the monastery, she asked to be admitted and to be made a monastic. Although the monks thought she was a man and not a woman, they refused to do so at first, unless she remained in the open air all night, and in this way, giving the brothers a means of testing her perseverance. Theodora not only agreed to their suggestion gladly, but also undertook it to fulfill it, although she knew full well that she was likely to be attacked by wild beasts at night, since the place was a desert and quite wild. She passed the night in this way, waiting outside the gateway. For this reason, he who of old tamed the savagery of the lines for Daniel's sake, preserved the saint untouched by the beast, foreseeing to what heights of virtue she would swiftly rise. When the monks saw her feet, they decided that it was pleasing to God for her to remain with them. So no small test here. I mean, she subject to the elements, and not only the elements, but even uh, potentially to the attack of wild beast. So testing her on this very deep level in regards to, to her courage, her, her willingness, and uh, to place herself completely in the hands of God and, and discerning her vocation. Carol. Carol writes, it's hard to understand how it was God's will that Theodora and later Paul the Simple set aside their marriage vows and abandoned their spouses. Yes, you know, it's always a curious thing. And, you know, we hear of, you know, Peter as well being called by the Lord. And uh, uh, I don't know if he was married or not. We hear later on of his mother-in-law uh, to whom he brings the Lord. But I, I think that, you know, the sense here, I think with Paul the Simple, uh, certainly his wife was in, uh, unfaithful and had committed adultery. In Theodora's case, it's much more challenging that her desire is to give herself over to the Lord. And uh, how they were married or whether or not there were vows taken at that point, uh, again, I don't know. It's historically inaccessible to us. I think in our, con you know, in our understanding of marriage and of the marriage vows of the sacrament, uh, this is not something that we would support. Obviously, we would support uh, fidelity to one's vows, uh, unless there was something that uh, made it clear that there was some that there is some kind of impediment to the freedom there. Uh, but there wouldn't have been such a developed view, I think, of, of, the, of the marriage commitment at that point, I think, as early as this was. And, uh, and again, you know, I think we, we look at stories like this as more of an exception uh, than, rather than the role. You know, that there was something extraordinary about Theodora herself, you know, in, in the sense of her desire uh, for the monastic life. And that, you know, pulls her away from, you know, that which was a natural good, that of marriage, to pursue this, this path of monasticism. A good question. I mean, it's not something that uh, any priest or the church would encourage in our day. And as with anything, you know, that there is a kind of development and an understanding, a clarifying of the roles, which has been part of uh, the, the church's uh, action over the course of time. Like when there's a new religious order that develops, say the Franciscans will use an as an example, uh, they develop with this original charism of Francis. But over the course of time, a specific role is asked of the community, a clarification of how they're going to live their life so that it might, they might live in accord with the mind of the church as a whole, that not discounting the value of the uh, a charism of the founder that uh, the church always has to look forward to, to the well-being of 
its future members. And so ask for, again, a specific roles and a particular structure. And so early on in a period like this, you know, with the development of monasticism, there weren't the clear rules of life or uh, uh, church structure or canon law in the way that we would understand it today. So she survives the test of being not eaten by beast, wild beast. After gladly admitting Theodora, the abbot took her aside and asked her carefully who she was and why she had come to the monastery. Was it perhaps, he asked, because you were burdened by debts or were convicted of murdering someone or lacked the means to feed your children that you chose to cast off worldly garb? Theodora replied, not any of these reasons, Father, but only in order to have respite from the tumult of the world and to mourn deeply for my own sins. What is your name? asked the abbot. My name is Theodore, said the brave woman. The abbot said, do not suppose, Brother Theodore, that your life here will be without toils. But if you wish to submit to the yoke of obedience, you should know that you will serve all the needs of the brothers, not only those within the monastery, such as taking care of the plants and vegetables and carrying water and watering the garden regularly, but also performing tasks outside the monastery. When it becomes necessary for you to depart for the city, do not ask to be excused. Let not these tasks uh, will be present, be a pretext for you to avoid ascetic labors. On the contrary, it is all the more necessary for you to attend unceasingly to fasting and prayer and to chant vespers and matins every day as if our, uh, as is our custom. In addition, you must not omit any of the hours during the day. You must also toil on bended knee and in this way wear out your body so as to face the attacks of the demons who war against us on earth. So, you know, getting back to Carol's question again, you know, I, I think you know, the monastic life was seen as a kind of white martyrdom. And so a higher path to be chosen that after this church ceases to be persecuted, uh, you know, one of the uh, things that drives individuals into the desert was to engage in this kind of battle with the, the demons uh, to embrace this life of deep repentance and penance that was uh, a kind of martyrdom, a dying to self and sin in a radical way and a dying to, to the world. And, uh, and so he's uh, warning her right from the beginning that uh, don't expect this life to be without its toil. In fact, you're going to be asked to do more than the, the, mem the ones who are already members of the community. And you will be asked to do the most menial task, the most humble task of the community without question, as well as keeping all the hours of prayer throughout the day. And so here we see this deep testing of uh, an individual's resolve uh, to give themselves over to this life that is not meant to be one of comfort and ease. Uh, but of deep prayer, of penance, and of hard work, and of setting aside one's own will. And the amazing thing about Theodora is that she doesn't flinch at any of these things uh, right from the beginning. Uh, and I think this is, you know, the author's making it clear to her, to, to us, how exceptional she is among all the monastics. Uh, that she certainly has no less resolve than any of the, 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 the men in the monastery, but in fact proves herself to have a greater desire for God and for the monastic life. When the Blessed Theodora heard these instructions, reckoning them a delight for her soul, she promised to carry them out with great eagerness. And this way she joined the ranks of that noble company of monastics, she had renounced all carnal inclinations. Her promises to God were sure to be fulfilled. She immediately gave herself toils without hesitation and without offering excuses for avoiding the service expected of her. She busied herself for eight years in watering the plants and the vegetables, 
which provided for the needs of those in the monastery and devoted herself every day to grinding corn, kneading dough, and preparing loaves of bread without lagging behind. She also boiled vegetables with which those who were earnest about mortifying carnal impulses sustained themselves. She was never absent from the services celebrated in the church, but even more in this respect did she manifest her love for God in her soul. So for eight years, she goes through this testing, again, in the, the most humble of, of tasks within the monastery and seeking to provide for the needs of the others while, again, engaging in this deep prayer life and commitment to the community's prayer life, never absent from, from the services. And, uh, and so, again, we, we see here the, the need for this constancy in the spiritual battle and in the spiritual struggle. And so when we look at our lives, uh, you know, I think we can fall very easily into a complaining spirit uh, to complain about the things of our day-to-day -day life, whatever they might be, the things that bring even the smallest amount of dis-ease or discomfort or inconvenience to our life. We often moan and complain about it and, uh, and how foreign this is to not, not just the monastic spirit, but I think the, the, the spirit of the Christian as a whole, that if we see all things as beginning and ending with God and all things coming to us as the will of God and part of his providence, then we would take them up with the kind of joyfulness that she was able to do. That uh, even though given this task for eight years, she was able to take it up without Again, any hesitation, but with a kind of joyfulness in, in fulfilling, fulfilling this role. Bridget writes, I love this story. She was amazing. Far from the utter, uttermo uttermost coast is the price of her. What a warrior for Christ. Uh, yes, and I, you know, I think this is what the abbot and the rest of the community begins to see, begin to see within her that she was engaged fully in the, the spiritual warfare, not only with demons, but with her own, own willfulness, that she had uh, set it aside uh, completely. Uh, Carol Nypaper, did they ever find out she was a woman? Not, not to my knowledge, I don't know. Let's see, we'll see if it comes up. I don't, I don't believe so. Although she clung to this dis discipline and chose an exceedingly laborious way of life and thought of her previous sins did not allow her to be entirely at peace. After nightfall, when she ought to have slept and rested a little from these day-long duties of hers, she would smite her breast and arouse her soul to tears, saying, Forgive me my sin, O Lord, which has destroyed the comeliness of my chastity. Regularly, she purchased oil, corn, and other necessities for the monastery, conveying them there on camels. In short, there, were, there was no laborious duty which Theodora did not prove more eager than the other monastics to carry out. And so one gathers from the explanation of this is that there was something within her life, even within the context of married or married state, where there was kind of breakdown of chastity, you know, a, a disorder there in terms of the human appetites for which she was doing penance. And uh, this was part of, of what drove her in the life. And again, beyond, I think, even what was required of her that not giving herself the rest that uh, was her due, certainly after, or one would easily claim as her due after doing all these duties, but keeping herself up at night, uh, continuing, continuing in, the, in the penance and the prayer. So very a powerful story. Ambrose writes, I guess someone must have figured it out because they know her as St. Theodora, not St. Theodore, that's correct. <laughs> so obvious, but thank you, Ambrose. You need, see, we need a Dominican in this group to clear up these, uh, these things for us. <laughs> uh, but yes, you know, she is deeply revered. In fact, we celebrated her feast not too, not too long ago. 
And, um, but a powerful witness, I think of this lack of complaining spirit, but stability in, in this desire for God and a willingness to take on the things that are often seen as hardships. And this again, I think crosses over all particular vocations for the Christian that in our day-to-day life, we would seek to take up the things that come to us, uh, regardless of the costs. You know, certainly parents, I think, have to experience this very often in the raising of their children and the work of the day. The day never ends, and uh, you know, the, and then they sort of have to fall into bed at the end of the night, as well as maintaining their own prayer life. And, uh, and so to keep a clear vision about our identity and what we are called to, and to be able to look at those things, uh, not as punishment or you know, something that, uh, that takes the joy away from our life. I think what we see in Theodora is that she saw in this penitential life and this, uh, these opportunities to set aside her own will, but to give herself so fully, uh, that these were all sources of great joy for her. It wasn't something that drew, drew her into sadness. And, uh, and I think that this is what we would want to hold on to as well, that whatever comes to us in our day-to-day life, that we would embrace it with joy and, and embrace it as it comes to us directly from the hand of God. And that can be sickness. It can be just the difficulty of day-to-day life, the struggle of things not working out in the way that we would want to. We would still give ourselves over those tasks as received from the hand of God himself. Uh, someone typed here, just clarifying, Monday at 7.30, I have this link. Wednesday at 7.30, what's the link for Wednesday? <laughs> uh, well, I will post it as part of the comments. It's... Uh, uh, a link that goes out with the ad that I, I post every week. So it's pretty easy to find. And maybe Ren can put it up here at some point uh, this evening in the, in the chat. Okay. So that's the story of Theodora. From the life of St. Melania, the Roman. St. Melania established a convent of more than 90 virgins in Jerusalem near the Mount of Olives and appointed for them an abbess who surpassed the others in teaching and in her conduct. In her service of them, she was like a servant, but in her love for them, she was like a mother, for with the utmost humility, she would offer them advice that was indispensable for their salvation. She used to tell them with regard to obedience and submission to authorities, that even in worldly affairs, what above all else maintains order is for a king to be a king and a subject to be a subject. If one takes this away, he will destroy order and will have confused both things as well as persons. She was wont to cite the following example. Someone once approached the great, a great elder eager to be his disciple. Indicating from the very beginning what kind of disciple he ought to be, the elder ordered the man to strike and kick with all his might a statue that was standing close by. When the young man obeyed, the elder asked him whether the statue reacted or expressed displeasure while it was being struck or, and kicked. The young man replied that no such thing had happened, and the elder once more ordered him to strike it and to add insults to the blows. He did so three times, and the statue remained just as lifeless and mute and mute statue. The elder then told the young man, if you can endure the same abuse without answering back, just like this statue, which withstood all the offensive treatment you inflicted on it, proceed in confidence and take advantage of the training you will receive from us. If not, do not undertake to spend your life with us. So it's a hard one. You know, he's telling this young man that part of the cross that you will have to bear is what our Lord bore uh, and actually carrying the cross, the insults, the blows that he received uh, from the men of the world. 
And so one entering into this monastic life has to be willing to, to bear with the daily insults and slights and offenses that others uh, would commit against him and not respond in anger to be able to receive those things as the Lord received them and not to give them back in kind and, uh, and not to enter into this life uh, expecting anything different and uh, or to be treated in a kind of special way that the monastic life is a place of spiritual battle. And we've heard Climacus say, you know, when you enter into a monastery, you don't simply struggle with demons, you struggle with men and demons. And, uh, and men can be just as unruly and put us to the test as the demons do, you know, in terms of the roughness of their attitude, the ways that they might treat us, the things that they might say to us. And so he wants this young man to be prepared for that that you're going to have to deal with the weaknesses of others, uh, misunderstandings, and sometimes verbal abuse and insults, and to be able to bear that without being drawn into the passion of anger. And uh, this is always a hard one, uh, because I think we have this tendency to want to draw that line and say, you know, this, this far, no more. You know, I've had it. You know, I've put up with your nonsense for long enough, and I wash my hands of you. And you know, with entering into the monastery, you know, he wants this young man to understand clearly: this is what you're signing up for. And uh, and so, not to be surprised when you are going to be put to the test uh, beyond the measure that you can imagine. And uh, in order that then you might not be subject to that temptation that makes you think I've made the wrong decision or I made it hastily or no one warned me about this. And so then be tempted to leave, to give up on the life. But if you persevere, then what you will experience in that life is a freedom from anger and deep humility. Carol. Heroic meekness, right? Are you typing more or is, there, is that, okay. Heroic meekness, right. Then we've often talked about that as meekness as being, you know, anger that is transformed by God's grace and by his love that prevents us from responding to things such as this uh, and not giving back uh, the same thing to another person or worse, that it allows, uh, you know, certainly for justice, especially uh, when others are being afflicted in some way, uh, for us to be able to see that and respond to it. But meekness allows us to see with a kind of clarity, to discern what is going on within the heart of others, why they are engaging us in a particular way and not simply allowing ourselves to respond to the feeling, the emotion or the passion and rather to respond with love and patience and humility. And, you know, this is difficult because it's not reasonable. And, uh, when I was thinking about the gospel for the weekend and the Byzantine rite, this is part of what came into mind. And uh, it was from one of Evely's, uh, Father Evely's homilies about suffering, where he talks about, you know, never receiving the right cross, the cross that we would choose for ourselves. It's always the one that, you know, where we are most defenseless and where we can't in our own minds see it as being something that's in accord with reason, even on a spiritual level, that we can't look at it and say, oh yes, of course, this is going to be for my good or the good of the church or the good of others, that it only seems to be something that is humiliating, not elevating, something that doesn't lift us up. And we never want that cross. We want something that we in some way can tell ourselves, well, you know, I can see how God might use this or what virtue he might produce out of it. 
and that's rarely how how it works. And these little stories, I think, again, present us with that reality of the cross, and again, in an unvarnished way, that we, we can't sanitize the cross, nor can we choose the ones that we are called to bear. You know, we would always want to set those aside for something else that we are, you know, would have the particular ability to handle and handle graciously. Okay, letter E from Palladius. Abacronios, a disciple of St. Anthony the Great, recounted to me a story about St. Paul the Simple, who acquired the epithet by virtue of his exceedingly guileless and simple character. A man called Paul, a countryman and a farmer, was married to a beautiful but malicious woman. She was engaged in adultery, but for a long time he did not realize this because he was pure in character and never entertained evil suspicions. One time when he had returned from the fields, Paul suddenly entered his house and caught her red-handed in the act of adultery. He smiled modestly and said to the adulterers, good, good, it is truly no concern to me. By Jesus, I'm no longer going to live with her. Go on, have her and her children. I'm going to become a monk. Without saying anything to anyone, he ran past the eight stops. He finally reached the blessed Anthony and knocked on his door. So confronting the adultery, you know, he doesn't argue or fight about it. He sees the reality of what's going on and, uh, and takes this as his opportunity then to pursue the life uh, of a monk. The great father came out and asked him what he wanted. Paul said to him, I want to become a monk. Anthony replied to him, you're an old man of 60 years, so you cannot become a monk. Go off to a village and work, live a productive life and give thanks to God, for you will not be able to endure the hardships of the desert. The elderly Paul answered, I will do whatever you teach me. Anthony replied, I've told you that you are an old man and cannot be a monk. If, however, you insist on being a monk, go and enter a monastery with many brothers who can put up with your weaknesses. With your weakness, I live here on my own, eating every five days. I remain hungry without eating to satiety. With words like these, the elder tried to scare Paul away. But when Paul failed to leave, Anthony entered his cave and shut the door, not coming out for three days on account of him. Paul remained sitting by the door and waited. So not only had he been cheated on by his wife, now he's being scorned by St. Anthony the Great, who's telling him he's much too old for the monastic life. And uh, this is where discernment begins to, to come into play, you know, and the testing as well. And why the next hypothesis is so important, I think, that uh, we often think of men entering into the monastic life at a very young age. But when we look at the history of monasticism, we see all kinds of men and women being drawn to this life by God who don't fit this, this kind of pattern, that they arise out of every station of life in every circumstance. Moses the, 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 the Black, remember Moses the Ethiopian, was a murderer and sort of the leader of a gang and, uh, and who undergoes a great conversion. And so you have these individuals who uh, are touched by God and by his grace who are drawn to this life. And it's, you know, I've talked about this before, being a little bit concerned sometimes with the, the rise of new communities. And sometimes they grow so quickly uh, that they can begin to, to discern those coming into communities in, into the community in a particular way, looking for, again, a certain personality type or one who might fit into that lifestyle in a certain way or being young, that they might be docile and formable. And uh, whenever there's a kind of red flag about the life of somebody who's a little bit older 
or hasn't come to the decision to enter into the religious life until in their 30s or 40s, often that's a red flag to almost immediately tell the person no, almost like Anthony does here, you know, go live a productive life, get a job, you know, uh, and don't, don't think about this. And so we, even here we see with the, the, the great St. Anthony, the need to uh, certainly put this man to the test, but also to have his own mind and heart open to what God was doing in this old man's life. And, uh, and he's shown very clearly in what develops in Paul uh, that God had definitely drawn him to this way, to this way of life. So the story goes on. On the fourth day, compelled by some need, Anthony opened the door and came out. When he saw Paul, he said, get away from here, old man. Why are you bothering me? You cannot stay here. Paul replied to him, it is impossible for me to go away or to die anywhere else but here. Anthony scrutinized him. And when he saw that he was carrying no provisions, bread, water, or anything else, and that it was now the fourth day that he had persisted in not eating, fearing lest Paul should perish and he should stain his own soul for having failed to show any sympathy for the old man, he took him in. After moistening some palm leaves, the elder told him, take these and plait a rope as you see me doing. The old man plaited 15 fathoms of rope with much toil until the ninth hour. But when Anthony saw the results of his plating, he was displeased. He approached Paul and said, you are bad at plating, undo it and plate it again. He imposed this on Paul, although he had been fasting already for four days, as I said, and was an old man in order to test his perseverance. Paul undid the rope and plaited it again with great difficulty because the leaves were shriveled up after the first plating. When Anthony saw that the old man did not grumble or complain, and did not become in the, least, uh, in the least bit annoyed or frown at all. He was amazed at him. After sunset, he said to Paul, Papa, do you wish that we eat a morsel of bread? Paul replied, as you see fit, Abba. This made even Anthony more sympathetic, but he did not rush forward immediately at the announcement of food, but yielded to the elder's authority. He told Paul to set the table. He obeyed. Anthony then brought forth four, four rusks weighing about 30 grams each, and he moistened one for himself, but three for Paul. After this, he recited a psalm which was chanted. When he had chanted it 12 times, he prayed 12 times so as to test Paul in this way also. Paul eagerly prayed with him, and after praying, they sat down to eat, since it was deep into the evening. So Anthony was ruthless. This poor old man, uh, having, not, having not eaten for four days, put to work, and then rebuked for working poorly, and, uh, and then made to pray and chant repeatedly the, the Psalms, is able to do this without any sign of frustration whatsoever. No frown on his face, no hesitancy, no grumbling. Uh, much to the amazement of Anthony. After eating one rusk, Anthony did not touch another. The old man eating at a more leisurely pace still had a bit of the rusk which he had started. Anthony waited for him to finish. When he had finished, he said to him, Eat another, Ras Papa. Paul replied to him, if you eat, so do I. If you do not eat, neither do I. Anthony said, it is enough for me, for I am a monk. Paul said, it is enough for me too, for I also wish to become a monk. They got up from the table, and Anthony said 12 prayers and 12 psalms. Paul prayed with him. Then they slept for a little while until midnight. They woke at midnight and began to chant until daybreak. When Anthony saw the old man following him eagerly in everything, he said to him, Look, brother, if you can live like this day after day, you can stay with me. Paul answered, 
I do not know whether you have anything more to show me since I can easily do these things that I see you doing. When St. Anthony the Great was assured that Paul had a soul that was quite perfect in every respect and that was unpretentious and guileless, he set up a cell for him after a few months and with the help of God's grace, about three or four semi away from his own cell, saying to him, behold, by the power of God, you've become a monk. From now on, remain by yourself so that you may experience the testing of the demons. After living on his own for a year, the simple Paul was granted the gift of chasing away demons and diseases of all kinds. He had succeeded in attaining the heights of ascetic virtue. So, relentlessly scrutinized by Anthony, and eventually even Anthony has to acknowledge the great beauty of his virtue and set him up as a monk with his own cell and allow him then to undergo the deeper testing at hand, and which is that of dealing with the, the demons. Uh, and this was always the, the greater battle uh, for, for the monks. And one of the reasons that even they went to, to the desert that this is where the real testing took place on a psychological level. And Anthony, we see preparing him for this in, in an incredible way, uh, precisely because of his advanced age to see whether or not he could endure this. And not only could he endure it, but he was able to endure it heroically. And so Anthony makes him a monk and allows him to live on his own to begin to do this battle. There are a couple comments here that I wanna be attentive to. Sheila writes, but in another way, why do we feel that way? Does one really know what they want out of life in their twenties? Some sure, I'm 46 and I only feel that now I have an inkling of what God wants. What an odd mandate. We learn how to suffer the more we live. Good for him. You know, there's some truth to that. You know, it's, you know, as I've looked at even modern day monasticism, uh, you know, there's been a kind of resurgence in Russia, Romania, places like that. And often you will find men being drawn to this at an, a later age, you know, perhaps having worked in the world for a while and maybe gone through many things in their life, many experiences that sort of led them along that path with a greater clarity. And so I think on some level, you're, you're right. That's, you know, when we're in our 20s, you know, the idea that someone might be more docile at that point, teachable, may be true. But that's only one element that we see here. That, you know, that one also has the courage and the capacity to enter into this life, the virtue to sustain it over the course of time and to be obedient to one's elders. And often there isn't that, uh, I think what you're hinting at here in your twenties, there isn't that level of psychological and spiritual maturity uh, to enter into this way of life or endure it, or certainly to endure the kind of testing that we see Anthony giving uh, this elderly monk. And I've often wondered that, you know, I think even in coming up to ordination, there's nothing about seminary, as I've often said, that really prepares you for that. You know, taking classes does not prepare that for you. And reading about certain things and being able to articulate them well does not prepare you for the spiritual battle that we undergo on a daily basis, whether married or monastic or, or priest. And so where does the real formation take place. And uh, often without that testing, you know, people will leave that vocation, whatever it might be, uh, when they come up against the difficulties of their own willfulness, or the, the, they're being driven by passions that were never addressed directly in the course of their life. Uh, you know, it wasn't until I entered and was a novice and well into seminary that I even heard about the fathers or really a, about the passions and how they manifested themselves. And, uh, and it really ne never came up in seminary in any kind of depth. 
not that we didn't talk about the spiritual life. And so I w- was always amazed. And I think this is why I came to love the fathers because it was the first time that I was shown anything about the interior life and that the active life is the interior life, the struggle with the passions. But so often I had heard, you know, of living the active life, you're engaged in works of charity, which is part certainly of the, the Christian life and identity. But the active life is really what we're reading about, you know, the, the struggle with the demons, the struggle with our own passions, and seeking to be conformed to Christ. And so, Sheila, I think your question is a good one. You know, why, why is that we push it so early? And, uh, and just lengthening the amount of seminary or having a year when somebody works in the parish isn't going to do it either. You know, there has to be this return to the sources of the spiritual tradition in order that the heart might be formed. And there has to be an emergence of elders that can engage individuals on this level to, to, to test and to give rise to the virtues that are needed in order that, uh, especially for those who are going to be ordained, that they might be able to be a source of guidance for others. Bridget wrote, I agree, Sheila. I think older is better, especially these days. I don't know any 20-something person who's really mature these days. And Sheila says, I get the docile part, right, which is what I said, you know, the docile part is understandable, but it's not necessarily going to sustain a person, because it's not indicative of maturity. You know, I think most often, you know, someone can be docile enough even to pretend, you know, to be listening to someone who's instructing them. Uh, but I think to really to have this desire uh, to pursue the Lord, to enter into this spiritual battle is the more important thing. You know, the desire for the Lord that w- makes us want to enter into the spiritual battle with the same zeal as Paul, Paul the Simple or of Theodora. Father, are you willing and able to give a retreat to seminarians on the Desert Fathers? No. <laughs> uh, of course I would be, you know. And isn't this, this is, you know, this is one long retreat. This is like a 10-year retreat on the, on the Evergatinos. So they can, they can all join us. So let's see, we're at the bottom of page 219. One day, and this is where we begin to see the fruit of Paul's labors. One day, a young man who had a powerful demon, a demonic commander inside him, was brought to St. Anthony the Great. This demon was blaspheming, even against heaven itself. Anthony took a look at the youth and said to those who had brought him, This is not a task for me, for I have not been granted the gift of casting out this rank of demon. Paul the simple has this gift. St. Anthony went with him to Paul and said to him, Abba Paul, cast out the demon from this man so that he may return to his home in good health and glorify the Lord. Paul asked him, why do you not do it, Anthony? Anthony replied, I do not have the time. I have other work to do. St. Anthony the Great left the boy behind there and returned to his own cell. It's a good line from St. Anthony. No, (laughs) I don't have the time to do it. You take care of it, Paul. Paul stood up and prayed, and after summoning the demonized youth, said, Abba Anthony says you must come forth from this young man so that I may glorify the Lord, so that he may glorify the Lord. The demon cried out with blasphemy, I'm not coming out, you foolish old glutton. Paul took his sheepskin cloak and smote the boy on the back, saying, Come out, as Abba Anthony said. The demon began to rail at Anthony, and Paul even more violently. You greedy, doll-witted daughters, insatiable as you are, what do you have to do with us? Why do you tyrannize us? Finally, Paul asked, Are you not coming out? See, I'm going to tell Christ, and woe betide what he has in store for you. 
The savage demon blasphemed, even the Lord crying out, crying, I will not come out. Enraged at the demon for this, the simple Paul came out of his cell, although it was high noon, the heat of Egypt, especially in these regions, is akin perhaps to the furnace in Babylon. Standing like a pillar on a rock, he prayed in this way, do thou behold, O Jesus Christ, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that I am not going to descend from this rock, nor will I eat or drink until I die, unless thou hearest me now, and cast casts out the demon from this man and makest him free from the unclean spirit. While he was still uttering these words, the demon cried out through the man in front of the cell, I'm going, I'm going, I'm coming out by force and I'm being driven out by tyranny. I'm withdrawing from the man. I'm no longer going to approach him. Paul's humility and simplicity are, are driving me out, and I do not know where I, I will go. The unclean spirit immediately came forth and was transformed into a huge snake, nearly 70 cubits long. It dragged itself off in a direction in the direction of the Red Sea. So it's an interesting story, you know, that we see the profound humility of Paul the Simple and why Anthony brings the youth to him, that even as he takes upon himself this task, he's saying that it's through Anthony that you are being commanded to come out, that he, he's not, in his humility, he's not taking it upon himself as though he's gifted in this measure. And even when the demon continues the blaspheme, he calls upon the Lord, to cast him out. And then when the demon blasphemes uh, still, you know, he takes upon himself penance on behalf of this young man who's possessed. And a penance that uh, where, where he holds back nothing of himself. I will stand upon this rock in the heat of the sun of Egypt. I will take no food or drink for myself until the Lord cast him out. And it is this, you know, this not holding on to anything for himself, but this absolute trust in the Lord that drives out the demon. And so we, we see the, the profound humility uh, within Paul that it is greater than even Anthony himself. And it is this, this humility uh, that, that ultimately drives out the demon. This was the work of the simple and humble Paul, through whom God showed what degree of honor and glory he grants to unpretentious and humble people. For through his simplicity and modesty, Paul quickly put to flight the demon, which even St. Anthony the Great could not expel. He did this after only a year of asceticism, so that thus, he, thus the saying of the Holy Spirit might be fulfilled. To whom will I have respect, says the Lord, but to the humble and meek, and the man that trembleth at my words. It is customary for the more lowly of the evil spirits to be cast out in faith by men advanced in virtue, while those demons higher up are put to flight by humbler men. So, an interesting little phrase there at the end, too, you know, those who are great greatly known among the monks who even have greater stature, you know, might have this ability to cast out demons, but it's really these humble and lowly ones, the simple one who would gain no respect, even perhaps in the eyes of his fellow monks, where the true power of God is able to act, where the individual does not put himself forward at all, but allows the grace of God to act through him solely. So there's no ego there to become an obstacle, an impediment to the action of God's grace. This is probably one of the most powerful uh, examples of the, the importance and the, the power itself of humility. We hear it over and over again within the scriptures, and we hear Christ speak about it, and the saints speak about it. But to see it enacted in the life of Paul the simple is a really profound thing. Uh, you know, that he not only goes through all the testing that he does, but within this year of 
years time of asceticism, that that virtue, that most important virtue of humility is perfected in him, that he's able to cast out the, the worst of demons. That humility is the straightest path to sanctity. And in the spiritual life, we will often emphasize other things. And including in the ascetic life, we will emphasize in our own minds the practices themselves and the meaning and the value of them. And because there can be a kind of sense of self-sufficiency, that illusion of self-sufficiency or strength that we hold on to, that we cling to. And we see in Paul the Simple, none of that, that he comes to Anthony already with this kind of radical humility that does not hold on to ego or any sense of self-sufficiency. He simply gives himself over radically to the Lord. And this is how he, he was able to bear with all the tests of Anthony, and then ultimately how he's able to reach the height of sanctity without even acknowledging it about himself. Like not having a kind of self-awareness, you know, or self-centeredness you know, self that he would attribute anything to himself. It's hard to wrap our minds around this, I think, because often our, our ego is so much at the forefront of everything that we do, even in the spiritual life. And so to encounter one like Paul uh, is, uh, can be unsettling for us, as it was sort of surprising for Anthony, that even though Anthony valued it and saw the value of it, he had never encountered one like Paul the Simple. Any comments? Ambrose writes, I love how he basically said to St. Anthony, is that all you got, <laughs> right? Yeah, you've given me the worst. Is that the, is that the sort of the, the, the extent of the testing that you have to give? And basically Anthony, you know, had to say no. You know, it's that I have no more to give you other than to set you up and allow you now to enter in to the greater battle with the demons. So it is highly unusual. And here for, again, for a man who was six, 60 years old, that it wasn't the physical endurance of the ascetic life. You know, the, it, it was the action of God's grace in this man's life. And in a subtle way, I think this story makes that distinction for us that asceticism isn't about physical endurance or strength or strength of mind, you know, that we can endure these things that come at us or these rebukes or insults. It's this radical reliance upon the grace of God is as alone being the source of our strength and the one who makes us capable of doing whatever he desires. And I think this is what shines forth in Paul the Simple that he has no illusions about himself and lacking those illusions, God is able to work these profound wonders through him. Any comments, further comments? So believe it or not, that brings us to, to 8.30. So a couple of really powerful stories, Theodora, and Paul the simple, and you know, desire and humility. I think I'd be happy if we came away from this group sort of taking hold of those two thoughts, that we see this as inherently a part of the ascetical life, the desire for God and the reliance upon his grace and humility, that this is what the ascetical life is about and, and whatever our station in life. And this is what perfects the heart. Any final comments before we close things for the evening? Okay. A lot to chew on there this week. So we'll stop there and we'll pick up on Wednesday with the Ladder of Divine Ascent.
And so why don't we close as always with the, uh, with the Our Father, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.